Haggai chapter 1, verse 1. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai to the prophet, to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your panelled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast and on all their labours. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God, and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. I wonder if you were to have a biography written of your life, uh, who you'd get to write it. Uh, Maybe a close friend, someone who'd uh, known you for most of your life. Uh, Maybe a great literary hero who'd write you into an exciting character. Uh, And what ground would you cover in that biography? Would you uh, start with your early childhood and school life, uh, and perhaps move on to further education and to the uh, glittering career that I presume lies ahead of all of you? Well, if you were to write the biography of Haggai, um, the author of the little book that we're looking at this morning, uh, it would be probably a pretty short and thin paperback. Uh, because all that we really know about Haggai um, is covered over a period of about four months. And we've only really got the book of Haggai and a few verses in Ezra and a couple of other places uh, that tell us anything about him at all uh, before he seems to disappear from the pages of history. But in those four months, God raises Haggai up and he does some remarkable things through him. He calls his people out of their stupor, out of their self-centeredness, and back into his purposes, back into his ways, uh, to go and rebuild uh, his temple. 
Uh, so before we take a look at Haggai chapter 1, uh, let's pray and let's ask for God's help uh, as we read it together. Heavenly Father, thank you that you love to speak to your people. Thank you that you speak to your people uh, through your word. So as we come to it again this morning, and particularly, Lord, as we think about the subject of, of money and giving, Lord, we ask that you would send your spirit to stir us up, Lord, to want to serve you uh, with joy and generosity. In Jesus' name we ask, amen. I'm going to split the chapter up into three this morning. Um, first, you're going to look at the first four verses under the heading, uh, What Time Is It? Um, and that's not to do with whether you're confused as whether it's the 9.30 or the 11 o'clock. Um, we're not about to start any playground games. Uh, but as you see, as we read those first four verses again, uh, it's got a couple of different applications here. Uh, so let me remind you of Haggai chapter 1, uh, verses 1 to 4. In the second year of Darius the king... In the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet, is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses? while this house lies in ruins. Well, speaking of time, um, let's do something to help us get our bearings as we jump into a perhaps unfamiliar part of the Bible. Um, got a little bit of a timeline that's going to come up with uh, three dates on it, uh, and this is all you really need to know in order to understand uh, where we are in the Bible. Um, prior to Haggai in uh, BC uh, 586, uh, God's people have been carted off into exile uh, to Babylon. Uh, this has started a little bit previously, uh, but this is the end of that process uh, where, the, where the temple in Jerusalem is finally destroyed and God's people are taken into captivity. Uh, that lasts for about uh, 70 years, but uh, God's people start to come back uh, the first wave in about 539 uh, BC. And initially, this is great. It's an amazing intervention uh, by God to uh, allow God's people to return to Jerusalem and things are going brilliantly at the start because God's people start rebuilding Jerusalem. They start rebuilding the temple. The book of Haggai, though, is about 20 years on from that. And the picture's a little bit different. Uh, now the building work has stalled. And instead of focusing on God's plans and his purposes, God's people are focusing instead on their own homes. Uh, there's a clue for us in verse 4 where it talks about paneled houses uh, now, this isn't a comment on home decor. We're not going back to uh, mid-1990s changing rooms. Lawrence Lowe and Bellen, he always used to do paneled houses, didn't they? No, but this is a little clue that, that tells us something significant, that actually these people were not just exiles returning home and trying to put a roof on their heads. Paneled houses were not typical of the time. Uh, these are luxurious redevelopments. Uh, this is, you know, more grand designs than two up, two down. And that helps us, uh, because when God asks these people, well, what time do you think it is? Do you think it's time uh, to make your houses luxurious while my temple leaves literally, leave, is left literally in ruins? And so via Haggai, God questions the people and said, you're saying in some kind of 
pseudo-spiritual way. Well, it's not time. The time's not right for rebuilding God's temple. But on the other hand, you're saying, it's definitely the time for me uh, to fancy up my house. And let me introduce you to uh, a lady named uh, Flory. Uh, Flory lived in a small village in North Yorkshire. Um, and she, in fact, lived in the house that was uh, right next to the church. In fact, uh, the church was on one street uh, on the hill, and she lived on the next street down the hill. So, if you like, her house was almost the basement of the church. Uh, but as she uh, grew older and became elderly, um, attendance at the church uh, had waned. And in fact, at one stage, uh, Flory was the only registered member uh, of that church. And Flory read Haggai chapter 1 verse 4. And despite the fact that she was elderly, despite the fact that her only income was a small pension, and that her house wasn't exactly fancy, never mind being panelled, it did have one thing. It had electric light. And the church didn't. And Flora said, that's not right. So out of her own pocket, and what little money she did have, she paid for electricity to uh, be added to the church, to be put in, and she paid the electric bill every month. I think as we read these verses, it's pretty clear what they mean. And it doesn't take us long to get our heads around them. And it doesn't take us long to start feeling uncomfortable. Because I think instinctively we know that just like these Israelites here were so good at placing their comfort and their security ahead of God's plans and his purposes... And just like they were good at putting things off and saying, maybe tomorrow, maybe next week, maybe when the kids are grown up, maybe when I get a promotion at work, that's the time to think. And maybe that's particularly true when it comes to money. So I want to encourage you as we think about giving over the next couple of weeks particularly to take some time out to think about it. Uh, to actually uh, read that giving literature that came through your door, not just to leave it on the side with uh, the other bills and uh, the parents' evening and the holiday brochure or whatever else lives on your side table. And take some time to think about what time it is in your house. Is it a time when you are focused on your own goals and your own aspirations to the detriment of God's? Take some time to pray about that and to think it through. Uh, together, if you're a family or a couple or if you're on your own and you're entirely in control of your finances, why don't you get together with a friend and say, let's think about this together. And maybe there's a danger as we look around and we say, well, you know, I know there's some problems downstairs in the church hall with that floor. Getting there. But it's not exactly in ruins, is it? SJB is quite nice. And Ken just said, didn't he, that our finances look okay. Maybe there's a tendency for us to think, well, my house isn't panelled. In fact, if you came round, there's definitely some DIY that needs doing. Maybe this doesn't apply to me. But the point that Haggai makes is not about figures. It's about our hearts. It's about what time it is. It's about what our priorities, what our passions are. As Ken mentioned earlier, there's never really enough money because there's always more that we could do. There's always more money that we could spend usefully on getting the message out about Jesus. Our ambitions shouldn't be limited. We don't ask, is this enough? 
but what more could we give? And secondly, and moving on into the middle uh, part of the chapter in verses 5 to 11, God challenges his people to consider their ways. Let's pick things up again in verse 5. Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have so much and harvested little. You eat but never have enough. You drink but never have your fill. You clothe yourselves but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them in a bag with holes. God's people have pursued their own comfort. And that is morally wrong. They have ignored the God who made them and who gave them everything. But as well as being wrong, Haggai goes on to argue that not only is pursuing our own comfort and security wrong, it's pointless because it doesn't satisfy. Those verses, you eat but never have enough, you drink but never have your fill, you clothe yourselves but no one is warm. You earn wages, but you put them in a bag with holes. And then finally, as they're summed up in verse 9, you looked for much, but behold, it came to little. They're a summary of our society, aren't they? It's not of our own hearts. We never have enough. The holiday isn't long enough. The body isn't thin or toned enough. The pay packet or the house isn't big enough. The car isn't fast or prestigious enough. Phone isn't new enough. Materially, as a society, we are better off than ever. Even those of us who are doing less well, relatively speaking, compared to most of the world, have wealth beyond their imagination. In most of our cases, we have more choice about our futures than ever before. And yet our society is less satisfied and more anxious than it's ever been. Why? Well, verse 9 tells us, You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills and on the grain, the new wine, the oil, and what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. Why is more never enough? Why are we dissatisfied and can't find meaning, even though we have wildly more options ahead of us than ever before? Well, because we are not made for those things. We were made to pursue God. We were made to glorify him. And it's only when we go after that that we truly find meaning and that we find lasting joy rather than passing happiness. I spent uh, a lot of time uh, at university uh, hanging around the fine art department. Um, Spent quite a few uh, hours uh, developing film in the darkroom printing time and time again, screen prints. Um, I can even remember spending a few days uh, painting one wall white over and over and over again. I think 13 coats did it in the end uh, to get it ready for the final exhibition. Um, I didn't take fine art at university, though. Uh, I studied politics and history. 
Uh, Carly, now my wife, studied fine art at university, and well, I think you've probably put two and two together. Uh, and why do I say that other than to embarrass uh, my wife? Um, it's a picture that we recognize. When we love someone or we love something, we're prepared to go to extraordinary lengths uh, to be near them, uh, to achieve that thing. It's true in lots of different areas of life, but surely we recognize it somewhere, that there are some things that to someone else would look like a massive sacrifice, but to us are as easy as pie because they're absolutely worth it to us. And that's what God through Haggai is saying to his people. Consider your ways. Consider what you are pursuing. Is it really worth it? Is it really going to bring you lasting meaning and satisfaction? Because if it's not me, it won't. It can't. And in fact, I won't let it. You were made for me. That's how we were designed. That's what we were meant to do. I became a Christian on a camp in North Wales when I was about 14 years old. I think if you'd asked me a few years before that, I could have given you a pretty good explanation of what the gospel was, and I think that I thought that it was true as well. But the penny really dropped for me during that week when somebody preached from the New Testament reading that we had earlier, and particularly that last bit, that, those two parables uh, which talk about uh, a man who found a treasure in a field uh, and a merchant who discovered a, a pearl of great price. And in both those examples, having discovered that thing that was worth everything, they were willing to give up all that they had and to spend it. And for me, there was a, a moment of realization that the penny dropped that not only was the gospel true, but that it was amazing. <laughs> and that it was worth giving up everything for, and that I would gladly do that. And I think sometimes when God asks us to do something difficult, whether it's in the area of money and finances, or whether he's asking us to go somewhere else to serve him, or to give up something else in order to follow him wholeheartedly, or he's challenging our behavior, the problem is not what he's asking us to do, but who we think is asking us. And so I'd encourage you, yes, to think about giving uh, in the next few weeks, but not to divorce that from who is asking us to give to them. The one who gave us everything and most incredibly gave us his own son. And if you're struggling, if you find your heart grumbling, then look at Jesus and look at what he gave to us and give from that, not because someone's telling you to. Because that is what God is after. Joyful generosity, not a number on a check or in a bank account, but people who delight to give their whole lives to him because they think it's worth it. In verses 12 to 15, in that final section, we are going to see a spirited response from God's people as they listen and recognize God speaking to him, and as they unite together to do incredible things with God's help. Uh, let me read again from verse 12. Then, then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God 
and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, uh, the, the, Joshua, the son, the son of Jehoshaphat, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th month, 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. I love these verses. Um, now God's people have humbled themselves under God's word. Now they recognize God speaking to them uh, through the prophet Haggai, who, who they now start to call God's messenger. Now that they fear the Lord, God reminds them, I am with you. And even though Haggai has given them a message which was difficult to hear, which shook them out of their apathy, which challenged them, which rebuked them for pursuing their own comfort and security instead of rebuilding God's house, they listen and they hear. This is an incredibly encouraging message for people who teach God's word. It takes them a while, it takes them 24 days, almost a month, but they do listen and they do respond. And when they recognize God's voice and when they are convicted by it and they start to respond in obedience, God gives that beautiful assurance, I am with you. And that's shorthand for God's covenant blessings to his people. It's something that God says time and time again throughout the Old Testament, particularly when God's people go off track and get in trouble when they're carted off into slavery, into Egypt, God says, I'm with you and rescues them. Now these people are a generation who have just been in exile in Babylon because of their sin. And God says, I am with you. And then something remarkable happens. God sends his spirit into his people and they start to work together for him. And God's going to help them rebuild this temple. I'm sure you've all seen a version of this film. It's normally uh, set in uh, an American high school uh, with actors who look about 10 years too old to be in high school. And um, uh, there's an underdog sports team that are facing an embarrassing and humiliating uh, defeat. Uh, but it's half-time, uh, and the good-hearted coach uh, comes out with the inspiring words uh, and they all put their hands in together and they go out screaming and shouting and in the most unlikely way possible uh, they overcome the odds uh, and deliver an incredible last minute victory. I'm sure you've all uh, seen something along those lines. Perhaps some of you though have even experienced how incredible it can be uh, to work together as part of a team with a united goal and a united vision and how thrilling that can be. And perhaps some of you have experienced that and known that God was at work in it as well. And just how incredible that can feel. And just what God can do through weak people when they listen to his voice and when they come together uh, to serve him. And that's exactly what happens here. God stirs up the spirits of uh, Zerubbabel, the political leader, of Joshua, the high priest, and look what else it says, all the remnant of the people, all of them together. 
and they recognized him as the Lord of hosts, their God. He was always the Lord of hosts. He was referred to him as such in verse 2, but now he's the Lord of hosts, their God. And because he is their God, because they recognize and listen to his words, God works in them and through them to begin the work of rebuilding the temple and to furthering his plans and furthering his blessing. I wonder, do you recognize when God is speaking to you through his word? What do you do when, like in those first uh, four verses, it asks you questions which are pretty uncomfortable to hear? What's your instinctual response? Uh, Do you shrink back? Do you say, well, it's not for me. Maybe it doesn't really mean that. Well, maybe, but now is not the time. Or do you, as we uh, sing together, uh, quite often test your thoughts and your attitudes against the radiance of God's purity as revealed in his word. And when God speaks to you and asks you a question, will you not just think about it, but will you respond? Will you say, you are the Lord of hosts, my God. I fear you. You're speaking to me. And will you look at him and say, you're worth everything. And I want to pursue you. And I know that pursuing other things, even good things, is not what life is about. And I want to pursue you with all my heart and with all my strength. Help me to do that. What does it look like for me to do that? Because when we do that, the results are remarkable. God loves to use people, people like you and me, sinful people, weak people, people who do often prefer their own comfort and security to do incredible things if we will listen to his word and obey it. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for Haggai. We thank you for what little we know about him, but how faithful he was to you. And we thank you for this difficult task that he undertook to challenge your people about their own comfort and security. And Lord, we confess that when it comes to talking about uh, money and finances, uh, we're often uncomfortable. But Lord, we ask uh, that you would send your spirit And Lord, we ask that you would help us to see you more clearly. And Lord, we ask that we will be so taken up with you, Lord, that when you ask us to do things for you or to give to your causes, that we would do so not holding things back, not grumbling, not unwillingly, but joyfully. In Jesus' name, we ask these things. Amen.